Hello, my fellow human beings. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you an incredible company, an organization that is attempting to do something that is unfathomably difficult and yet completely necessary for the survival of our species in an uncertain future. The question is, how do we feed all people on Earth no matter what? Today, I had a conversation with Aaron Mill, team coordinator and research associate for the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, or ALFED. ALFED seeks out to identify various resilient food solutions and help governments and companies implement these solutions to feed everyone in the event of a global catastrophe. In their research, they refer to abrupt light reduction scenarios, such as, for example, supervolcanic eruptions, which could deplete food supplies or access to 5% of the global population or more resulting in almost instantaneous mass starvation. Allfed finds their solutions in resilient food solutions, which are technologies and systems that could help everyone survive a global catastrophe that shocks the world's food systems. Their ultimate goal is to feed everyone no matter what. Let's find out how that is even possible. Thank you for listening to Type 1 Planet. Please Take this episode or take this podcast and share it with people who you think would be like-minded and be interested in the topics. Visit us on social media at Type 1 Planet and visit us on our website at type1planet.net. All right. Hello and welcome to the Type 1 Planet podcast. I'm Robert Roach and I'm joined by our guest today, Aaron Mill, team coordinator and research associate at the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, or Fed. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so AllFed seeks to identify various resilient food solutions, we want to help governments and companies implement these solutions so you could feed everyone in the event of a global catastrophe. And I think your organization commonly refers to these events that deplete the food supply as abrupt sunlight reduction scenarios. So, you know, there's an example from your website, right. super volcanic explosions. Describe like what these kinds of events actually look like. What does it do to our earth and our food supply and our civilization? Yeah, so that's a great question. So yeah, let's start with supervolcanic eruptions. A result of such a volcanic eruption would be that a lot of soot and or sulfate aerosols would be launched into the higher layers of the atmosphere. Uh, like depending on the size of the eruption, it would like go to different layers. And the problem is you can see if it like if it like tens of kilometers high, it doesn't rain down anymore. Right. So the problem would be that we have like a literally a literal darkening of the sky. And as a result, uh here like less sunlight will come down uh to the surface of the earth and that will lead to a cooling effect. And will obviously or like naturally uh, impact photosynthesis of crops. So this is already like a huge impact on our like agriculture and ability to produce food. And in addition to that, this could also um, impact how uh, weather um, functions. So there's uh, climate models that show that precipitation is disrupted severely. We might get less rain. So you can see how. Uh, our agriculture, where uh, we don't have artificial irrigation, will be disrupted as well, like areas that are dependent on rain. So this could last for several years, depending on the size and the amount uh, erupted. The, so the size of the eruption and the amount of, say, sulfates that uh, reach high into the atmosphere. And 
yeah, this um, then as a consequence could lead to widespread food insecurity or potentially global famine in the worst cases. Okay. And do we have any historical examples that we pull from research or, you know, where has this happened in a time when we were able to collect data on it? Yeah, great question. So we have a smaller example. So uh, in 1850, uh, we had the a volcano Tambora in the Philippines erupt, which caused several kinds of disruptions. So on the one side, it uh, messed with the monsoon patterns uh, for India. I think it caused um, weather disruptions and um, famines across East Asia. But also where I'm a bit more familiar with is uh, Central Europe. So here in Germany, uh, where I'm from, we had the year without the summer in 1860. So there are reports, say for like a warm summer month, like June or July, where it literally rained like more than 25 days of the month. So, and it was, we had, well, a gray sky raining all the time, led to widespread crop failure, a lot of deaths from famine. And to give like an historic anecdote here, um, Mary Shelley, the author of the book Frankenstein, actually through that time, um, if I recall correctly, they, uh, she and her friends, uh, wanted to do like um a holiday in their like summer residency in the swiss uh alps and yeah on the way there they saw a lot of people starving left and right potentially uh, already a few dead and while they were there they were kind of locked in so because it was raining the whole time sometimes even hailing uh despite it being in the summer so as a pastime, they told each other ghost stories in front of the fireplace. And legend has it that that is where the story of Frankenstein emerged. So um, that is like a very recent example. Um, That's fascinating. But in addition, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, it's very interesting. I can uh, really recommend the book, The Year Without Summer. Um, but also like this was not a super volcanic eruption that so these effects were global but uh like the larger scale effects were more regionalized so uh this for example did not spread the whole way say to north america i think there was like a cold front at the east coast um but nothing that would lead to say widespread food insecurity and famines but we do have uh from the climate record more examples where large-scale volcanic eruptions are tied to um, uh, cold periods or potential ice ages. So this is like going back into like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or potentially even millions of years. And, you know, there's a, there's a likelihood associated on your website and in your research with these kinds of scenarios. So, you know, I, there's also the, the like, you know, large uh, asteroidal impact. There's the uh, super volcano. And I think the asteroidal impacts like a 10,000th of a percent or something, and the supervolcano is a 100th of a percent, and then there's nuclear, which is astoundingly 1% probability a year or, or something like that. Uh, you know, how, does the, do these percentages uh, affect all Fed strategy? Do you address nuclear winter as a priority over supervolcano strategy? Are they different in some way? Yeah, that's a great question. So... Yes, obviously, our like likelihood of um, or the 
the perceived likelihood of the forecast will impact what we prioritize. But in this uh, specific case, as you mentioned earlier, we talk about the category of abrupt sunlight reduction scenarios, right? That is the three things that all of these events, um, nuclear war leading to nuclear winter, uh, supervolcanic eruptions leading to a volcanic winter, or an asteroid impact uh, with a similar effect, um, they have in common is that the impact is like the darkening of the skies to a certain degree and therefore an impact on agriculture. So the solutions look, um, or in these scenarios, are very similar, if not the same, uh, at least from a first principle um, perspective. Yeah. Okay, got it. So let's talk a little bit about those solutions. So there's a term that you use a lot, resilient food solutions. So what is a resilient food solution? How do you define that? Yeah, thank you. So resilient food solutions have different kind of characteristics. So first of all, they need to be scalable and like rapidly scalable. Um, and or a second criteria would be they need to be independent of traditional agriculture inputs. And ideally, being affordable all the way through. Uh, because uh, if we already look at the world today, right, there's a lot of food insecurity, even though we produce enough food, which is linked to affordability as well. So to give an example here, what would be an ex uh, a food that could be scaled very quickly? That might be a seaweed. So because for like for seaweed farms, we've got the ocean. It's vast. We would like need less than a percent of the ocean area to potentially feed the world, right? In calories, which we wouldn't do directly. Um, but say a low-tech seaweed farm, uh, you can imagine is basically a floating rope structure from which the seaweed grows um, and swims. That is something that's very scalable. Um, we have the technology. Uh, it's already being done in like Indonesia and China. They have large scale seaweed farms. Uh, so that's one food solution, right? It could be a small part of our diet that is very scalable and uh, fairly um, cheap, affordable. Uh, another example would be single cell proteins. So what are single-cell proteins? You can imagine they're like bacteria feasting, say, on methane or hydrogen. And that can, we can turn into like a powder, which is almost pure protein. We are already producing this today. It's being mostly used as a fish feed. So, um, but it's safe to consume or there are versions of it that are safe to consume. And that doesn't rely, say, on well, the sun mm. directly, right? So these are examples of resilient food solutions. Mm. Okay, got it. It's, and are the seaweed crops resilient, not reliant on the sun or is it just to a much uh, lower degree? Yeah, great question. So um, yeah, to a much lower degree is kind of the correct answer in this case. So we have taken growth models and we see that seaweed is not being limited by the amount of sunlight hitting uh, the earth, or in this case, I guess, the ocean area. Um, it's mostly limited by nutrient availability. So that's also where you can see, for example, seaweed growing to like 10 meter below the ocean surface, right? Where a lot of sunlight is already being reduced, uh, just or absorbed by the water itself. Um, yeah, it's highly efficient uh, in their uh, photosynthetic process. There's another term I saw somewhere, I think in the... Um the paper that you sent me uh, referring to cold crops. What are, what are cold crops? 
yeah. So yeah, these are a very important um, type of crop when we talk about resilient food solutions. Because in these abrupt sunlight reduction scenarios we talked about, the or one of the primary or like one of the biggest impact on agriculture is the cooling down of uh, the atmosphere or like yeah, just like the general global cooling that will take place. And therefore we will get nights of frost in uh, larger areas than we would have gotten before. And for example, if you take a potato, <laughs> A great crop. I love it. Um, a potato crop doesn't mind or does not die if there's a single night of frost, to give an example. So generally, cold-tolerant crops will be very important in such a scenario. And one thing we're looking into, how could we relocate crops, say, from higher latitudes closer to the equator, where then where they, in this kind of scenario, would feel um, or would flourish more. Uh, to give another example, there are types of um, weeds. There's, for example, like um, spring wheat or, or summer wheat or like winter wheat, and they have different tolerances um, regarding to temperature. Mm. So, yeah, we're looking into these and see uh, which grow under which conditions. Okay, got it. That seemed... Uh, when you when you say you're relocating a crop from a northern latitude down more close to the equator, are you referring to uh actually beginning production of that crop closer to the equator or finding ways to just uh, increase the amount that's being created in northern latitude and then shipping it down so uh that's a great question and i can connect you more there with a colleague who's leading that project that's not a research project i've been um involved with or like that deeply um, but it's generally, th yeah, there's like several approaches how you could do this, right? Um, but ideally, getting the seeds um, into climates where they would grow well, right? Like what is what are the challenges behind that? How can we train new people to do this? This is like all work, uh, yeah, that we're interested in at all. Mm -hmm. So, and then the, um, the last thing I saw in your paper as kind of a, Another sort of technology that you're looking into is greenhouse cropping and and making that somehow more scalable or more efficient. What's what does that technology look like in your models? Yeah, that's like very related to the cold tolerant crops because greenhouses, um, in general, uh, uh, keep the temperature a bit more than an open field, say overnight, and therefore might reduce the amount of frost the crops will experience, and one thing we've looked into is how could we quickly scale the amount of greenhouses we have available, right? Like the lowest tech version of that is having like plastic uh, sheets, like thin film uh, covering uh, the farms. And yeah, in one of the papers we did, we looked at like what are the material constraints to say produce a million square kilometers of um, greenhouses. Right, like this is a hypothetical, but this would be very crucial, um, and we would ideally uh, generate uh, new areas of, um, yeah, farm area that we can use, and where we can grow these crops. Yeah, but that's basically yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's yeah. really fascinating. I I had a um, 
there, I'm, I'm getting to have these sorts of conversations more about what can we do in terms of, of, of crop failure and also kind of finding better ways to create enough food. Um, I had a, a amazing conversation with an episode that will have been out by the time, uh, uh yours is out called, um, with a guy named Christopher, Christopher Udall and, and Christopher, uh, he's a big venture capitalist in the ag tech and then also space agriculture. And it's, it's fascinating because mm -hmm. he's basically, uh, they, his, his company Hudson Alpha has created these is creating methods where they can grow crops, vast amounts of crops in space. And it's actually more feasible to just drop the crop down in the location or it's cheaper to drop the crop the lo in the location like a city, you know, in Boston versus shipping that crop from California to Boston. It's cheaper and it causes, it uses less because all you're using is gravity. So um, it would be pretty fascinating maybe to get uh, someone from your organization together with him to talk about like, okay, what, what, is this, is this look, what does this look like? Is it even possible in the uh, low light scenario that you're referring to? Yeah, that sounds interesting, but I haven't heard of it yet. Okay, all right. I'll send, I'll send, I'm looking forward to that episode. I'll send, oh, oh, sorry, I just uh, lost you for a second visually. All right, there you go. Um, so, uh, you know, the research page of your website is fascinating. I highly advise everyone to head over to the AllFed website. Um, it, and, you know, there's, uh, I could... Yeah, I guess uh, for our audience here, it's just like There. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. Um you know, there's, there, I want to dive into, I want to create an episode on every one of these bullets, but there's a lot of kind of different things that I, uh, I'm interested in. One is, uh, you know, in terms of the research, you know, you, you mentioned some cool technologies like the, uh, single cellular, uh, you know, methane consuming protein. Um, and then, you know, uh, some, some other, you know, the seaweed technology, what other kind of ideas are happening? You know, you're, you're working on getting calories and nutrients from plants and humans that are for plants, sorry, for humans from plants that we typically can't digest, you know, such as leaves or wood or something like that. You know, what does that process look like? Is, is there more projects in the work to see, okay, well, what else can we potentially eat if we were to manipulate it in some way? Yeah, we are always uh, keeping, yeah, an eye out uh, for solutions of uh, that regards. I know there are like grants out there to like synthesize uh, food basically speaking, out of thin air uh, with added water. Um, but yeah, one example you just mentioned there, like how to turn wood into food, um, it's also quite an interesting process. So uh, shall I briefly go into that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So the idea is that, um, well, plant fibers wood is mostly uh, uh, like cellulosic um, connections. And if you break that down, uh, you can turn that into sugar. So with certain enzymes, you can like basically create sugar from that. Um, and for example, well, ruminants like cows, that's why they can eat like uh, plant fibers because they have these kind of uh, enzymes uh, in their guts. So what we can do, um, which is like very interesting for these kind of catastrophes these like sudden abrupt shocks to a food system we could actually retrofit um plant and paper factories because they have a lot in common uh of the machinery needed to do that they have already all the machinery in place to like really grind down the plant fibers into like a pulp um 
And then we, in a sense, have to only add a bioreactor with the enzymes that then breaks down this mush out of cellulosic fiber and out comes sugar. This is obviously a simplified overview, um, but this is a source of calories that we could use. And in these scenarios, we would have a lot of dead trees um, that we could then use uh, to gain additional food production. Wow. Now, when you're thinking about these models, these potential scenarios, you know, I, I would imagine you'd have to create food combinations. You know, you'd have to have, all right, this is our source of sugar. This is our source of protein. Are there other, you know, what uh, do we need a source of, of like another uh, kind of thing that's very important for our bodies? You know, do you, is, do we have a full picture yet of everything that the body needs in this scenario? You know, like, you know, like in the matrix, they're eating the sludge. He's like, it's everything the body needs, you know, it tastes like tasty weed or whatever. Yes. Uh, great. Um, yeah, last year, colleagues of mine have uh, published a paper in that direction, looking not only at the macronutrients, so that would be fat, proteins, and uh, carbohydrates, but also at the micronutrients and like checking, okay, from the proteins, is it actually like a complete, the complete protein profile, right? I think we need like on the order of like 12 uh, amino acids to build out all the proteins that we need in our body. Uh, I don't have a nutritious background, so please don't quote me directly on this. Um, and yeah, we're doing work into that. And it looks like that the resilient foods, like the catalog that we are proposing uh, at Allfit and that we have investigated so far, can be combined in such a way that it would be a complete diet. Mm. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and all right, so let's just think about this theoretically. So... Um... We let's it. We're prepared in such a way where you know. Does it look like that all Fed would kind of create a protocol? Okay, uh, for each government, you return your paper mills to do this and start pulling uh, sugars out of the out of the wood. We'll use these kind of facilities to do this. Bring everything together. We'll create protein bars or whatever it is, and start distributing that to your to your population. Is that kind of like a set of instructions that you're providing, or are you setting up? You know facilities around the world that could potentially do this kind of work is that what's what's the, like the long-term vision here yeah great question so all feds long-term mission is to feed everyone no matter what and that is well that's like quite the ambitious high bar right um and well no single person or organization can uh achieve such an object uh objective but what we're trying to do is inspire work in that direction, inspire collaboration. Um, and yeah, we hope that with the work Allfit is doing, we're contributing towards that global effort that allows everyone to be fat no matter what. But how does that look like? Yeah, it can take several avenues. So we are creating a country response plans. We have started doing that recently where it takes into account how much of which industries um, the countries have. But that is like a very specific problem, right? Like ideally the long-term plan would be that there's like search capacity in place that um, there are say policies in place that in case of emergency, industries know that they need to retrofit or they are briefed and there have been like training or scenario exercises uh how to respond to these kind of shocks 
Uh, to give one example, at the start of um, 2020, when COVID uh, came around and it was clear it would become a global thing, we saw a lot of breweries uh, suddenly producing hand sanitizer uh, because they already had, uh, say, most of the infrastructure in place uh, to work with alcoholics and uh, disinfectants are like very similar, right? So that is something we have seen. Um, and yeah, that's part of what we would like to see as well uh, and have these plans in place. But I, I can like uh, expand on that a lot, like how this future could look like, what a more resilient world would look like. But I wonder where we want to go right let's, now. Let's, let's get, we're going to get there. Um, you know, I, a big kind of question that I have in my mind when, you know, I hear your mission to feed everyone no matter what is, uh, there's a there's a question first of creating it, creating the substance that people can eat. But then the second question is the logistical supply chain ramifications. You know, you have a, a catastrophic event. I could totally see our supply chain breaking down in such a way where, you know, distributing these uh, these materials and getting act regions to actually share resources with each other would be extremely difficult. So is this kind of are you building this into your models and your and your questioning as an organization? Yeah, this is this is a very important aspect um, of the mission: feeding everyone, no matter what. We have been mostly done research in the side of how to produce food. And uh, let me briefly explain why, and then come back to the supply chains, um, because they're like. A lot of scenarios, one we talked earlier about is uh, the supervolcanic eruptions, where global supply chains would not be directly uh, disrupted, right? We could think of a remote volcano erupting, but having a global impact on the climate. So in that scenario, we would have the capacity in place to um, collaborate, to trade, to work together. And yeah, our research has shown at all that, that yes, we can feed everyone uh, if we work together. So this is definitely something we encourage and want to inspire. So good governance along the lines of not banning food imports or exports is very important. This is also something that we want to see expanded, right? Like proper resources, finances, and time need to go in this area of supply chains. And I would imagine education and awareness around the, the reality of you know of what a, a one of these low light scenarios and and the probability of it is something that you have to do you have to reach out to these governments or these uh you know these different you know, just governing bodies and, and educate them about okay this is this is a possibility and you kind of have to build this into your uh your disaster planning do you have a, a team that's working with politicians to just really kind of be like, hey, this is, you have to kind of think about this. Yes. So we have colleagues within the team. I'm happy to connect you there with them um, and have a follow-up, maybe second episode if you're interested in that. I've been less on the outreach side. I've been more uh, the academic and team organization side. And, uh, but yeah, this is key that it, this gets, first of all, acknowledged as a risk these abrupt uh, scenarios because say if we were talking about something where people don't think it's like possible or like likely to happen within say an election period or within this decade um 
the chances are rare that it will be included, say, in a risk report or um, there will be a budget um, for that. But work has been growing, right? Like um, through COVID, a lot of governments around the world have learned that uh, global disruptions can happen and that there are like systemic risk and cascading risk, uh, which we can briefly go into what that, those terms mean, um, present. And um, so, yeah, outreach is definitely an important thing. Um, and yeah, we want to make sure these risks are understood. To give like maybe an extreme example here, for example, uh, for example, the UK has roughly like, if I recall correctly, like two weeks worth of food storage across the country because most of their food is being imported and in transportation. So if there, say, would be a major supply chain disruption, um, that would have key impacts uh, for the UK. So yeah, this needs to be acknowledged um, as like a risk and needs to be, uh, yeah, I looked into and prepared mm -hmm. for. And there's, um, just to bring it back to kind of vulnerabilities, uh, I saw um, on your website that technology, you know, our, our society's advanced and progresses in a huge way, but many of our innovations have also created vulnerabilities. And, you know, the UK here is super vulnerable in terms of its, you know, it's, it's, it's completely dependent on its logistical supply chain. So what are these, are there other vulnerabilities outside of supply chains, you know, and how can we shore up our technical technological infrastructure to address these weak points. Yeah, great. So yeah, let's first look at the risk and then potentially solutions here. So well, let me start with one point. I think we're already doing a great job in, to some degree. Um, we have established a great trade network across the world, with led, which led to like a lot of efficiency gains through uh, specialization, which had tremendous impacts around the world or like in terms of like health uh, standards, like um, life expectancy at birth, right? Um, and so that's great. But obviously, or like directly from that, we can see, yeah, but if those trade networks would be disrupted, we would um, lose those benefits. And we might not be able say, in our own country or whatever, whatever regional scale you want to look at to uh, to provide everything we need for the society to function. Um, but yeah, let's go briefly talk about all the areas which are like key uh, for modern civilization to work. So we've got electricity, um, communication systems. Then we have um, for the electricity, different sources, right? It's like it might be oil and gas. Uh, but also solar and the power grid itself as critical infrastructure. Then we got like radio towers, the internet. Um, we have our banking system. A lot of things uh, work based on that. And our water supply, which is uh, linked to our energy supply. So the, uh, there's a lot of interdependency and therefore there's a systemic risk here at play. So the systemic risk is like when the risk of a breakdown of like an entire system is um, possible instead of just like say a simple breakdown of a um, of an individual part or a failure of an individual part, 
and then we can have cascading impacts. Yeah, and and, and my episode with Anders Sandberg, who is on the uh, is he, he's on the board of of Alfed, Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Anders Sandberg is a board member at the Alliance to Feed the Earth and Disasters. Yeah, awesome and um, great episode. Thank anyway. you, thank you. Cheers. Uh, yeah, he 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 talks about this a lot. You know, it's it it can start with a logistical. We saw it in COVID, logistical supply chain issue is leading to. Uh, you know, food insecurity, even even minor food insecurity, where prices start to go up, that can lead to social unrest, which can lead to this, which can lead to that, and then you sprinkle a little global warming on top of that, and it gets worse, and things can can kind of cascade out of control. Is that the kind of uh, scenario that you're referring to? Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, you asked earlier about solutions. So, uh, how would a more resilient system look like? Or how could generally like the technology that enables the civilization we enjoy right now. Um, yeah, how could that be made more resilient? So on the one side, we need strategic stockpiles. So you could see that um, a lot of our like, they're like key transformers, for example, that are key parts of our um, power grid. And we could have like an unplugged transformer right next to one that's at work right now. And in case something breaks down there, Right, it might be like something we are also looking into are like loss of industry scenarios, not only quote unquote loss of sun scenarios, um, where say a solar storm might disrupt um, such devices. Right, and it's like good to have backup systems. That might be a thing, or uh, um, generally having more preparedness planning. Right, a lot of stakeholders or key actors of a society knowing what to do and have. Um, having done scenario exercises, how to respond, how to get critical infrastructure running again. And yeah, the technology developments also keep part of these resilient food solutions that we talked earlier, right? Like, have we developed them in such a way that they're like quickly scalable with that technology in mind? So for example, the single cell protein might be nowadays technology where there are like a lot of unique uh, facilities producing it, right? Like each company having their own approach. But say if you want like a blueprint for like build hundreds of these facilities, right? Like across different um, uh, regions around the world. Um, do we have that in case? Or did we get like test runs? Um, say almost like um, an army exercise of like, let's deploy a large area of seaweed farms and see how much food we can produce over one season, right? Like there would be, there's a lot to learn in this case. And I guess the last thing, a bit more, or like two more things, uh, a bit more on the general side, just building scenario planning and foresight capacities in our governmental institutions, having a bit more longer term plans, more forecasting. So this is not an easy task, but I, I would argue a very important one, or we at Alfred would argue that that is quite important. And um, a solution that I didn't talk that much about yet because the trade-offs are not quite clear are decentralization, right? So we could imagine, okay, well, I guess each country being self-sufficient might be more resilient to deep, uh, certain types of shocks, but there's a trade-off, right? Like we've gained a lot from the trade that we have right now in the world. So maybe identifying which things 
can actually be made more decentralized without having costly trade-offs mm. might be an important area of research. This is all fa so this is so fascinating. It's it's it kind of makes me want to bring together a conference or something in which we actually name each one of these stages because you know catastrophic event. Let's just say massive supervolcanic explosion. You know it's it's not totally impossible, and it's you know in the it's in that in that case we're kind of assuming there's no blame, which is important in terms of the nuclear winter scenario. There's a lot of potential blame involved, and that might really mess everything up but um you know right after that event you guys are kind of uh very early on let's say here in terms of like we need to survive that event we need to make sure that humanity doesn't just go instantly extinct and then you know there's there's other organizations of people that i've been talking to you know the, um an incredible uh company called arc which is creating this technology that uh can survive uh, in which information can survive solar flares. They're basically etching uh, incredibly vast amounts of information onto tiny disks made of quartz and, um, you know, and putting them into space and stuff like that. And so that's like much further down the line. And, and you know, the, uh, like we just need to survive first and then, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I would like to add a thing there um, that we are offered uh, because you mentioned like straight up extinction, right? Like there's also that say if a supervolcanic eruption has the potential yeah uh, the pos uh, has the potential to reduce our say food production by up to like 90% or like if we compare it to like the worst case nuclear winter there have been studies where it's like okay 90% of global agriculture might be disrupted um but there are like scenarios in maybe in which say 10% of global food production is disrupted and we could see that already cascading a lot because then there's not enough food to distribute anymore around the world. And so that could already lead to what, uh, a lot of famines. And um, the solutions we are looking into would also be viable there, right? And then why it's important for me to add this, what not, I guess we, an extinction risk, right? We, uh, we can go into like the definition of what a multiple breadbasket failure might be in a moment. Um, but this could like save hundreds of millions of people in such a scenario. And I think it's quite important that we have this capacity, globally speaking. So tell me about that term, multiple breadbasket failure. Yeah. So what is a multiple breadbasket failure? So let me first provide you with the definition and then maybe give a few examples. So a multiple breadbasket failure is like a simultaneous disruption to key um, or like to the largest agriculture production regions in the world um, due to like concurrent shocks or like or those areas experiencing concurrent shocks. So what might be an example? Um, extreme weather events, right? The risk due to climate change is increasing here or the probability of these events happening. So you could imagine, say, a drought over one continent or one key agriculture producer, maybe a flood over a second, forest fires over the third. And well, one thing we're, we have seen last year is a war in Ukraine, right? Ukraine, for example, has been a, is a large um, exporter of wheat and grains, and that disrupted the supply chains as well. Uh, and if we would have had several coinciding events, that would have led to multiple red basket failures. And 
easily could multiply our costs of uh, food around the world several times. Yeah. And that would be devastating for a lot of people who can't afford it. Okay. So this really is a kind of a part of that cascading model as well, where, you know, you're seeing the, this, this toppling of the house of cards, you know, and, and that metaphor that keeps coming up in my interviews. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and then you, you know, like we, we had a great conversation with, um, Dr. Sharada Krishnan, who is the director of programs for crop trust and crop trust is responsible for the Svalbard seed bank. They're responsible for creating, uh, seed banks with, with local governments all over the, the, the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly important in terms of preserving genetic diversity and, 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 uh, helping bring back crops that are extinct. And they've already started to do that, um, you know, in giant catastrophic scenarios, but it takes a long time. And, you know, having a handful of seeds is a lot different than having a huge amount of food that you can, you know, already use and eat and distribute. Um, so that I, I could see that readiness to um, retrofit that word that you use retrofitting our infrastructure in order to like be pivot, pivoting towards making food is is really important um and educating our our leadership about okay you need to make sure that you ca could retain these capacity this capacity in order to uh uh you know survive one of these events um that's that's fascinating and so just from a you know, an overview perspective, you know, what, if, if everything goes well, if everything goes really well for, for all fed and, and, and you guys are able to expand and you're able to take this to the greatest extent of your vision, um, you know, what is, what is it, what does that potentially look like? Uh, you know, are you creating, uh, centers across the, the, the planet that are, are doing this kind of research and implementing technologies with governments and, and, or is this more, are you really more of a research facility in order to educate and to create the, the, uh, concepts and the ideas and the technology, uh, and then passing that along to bodies that can actually implement it? Or do you want to be the implementers? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, so first of all, I want to quote one of our co-founders who always said, all fed is a think and do tank, uh, which, uh, I really like. So. As I mentioned earlier, achieving the mission of feeding everyone, no matter what, we couldn't possibly do alone, right? Uh, that's a very ambitious goal. So we want to be at the forefront, inspire organizations and institutions to think about this problem and collaborate, right? And enable these efforts uh, to prevent uh, future famines. Um, so how could a very successful future look like, right? By us partnering. And a thing I might want to add here, um, I think Allfed has now members on each continent except Antarctica. So um, we're remote working um, organization, um, remote working nonprofit, which makes scheduling fun. <laughs> As like we are already, already talking right now across continents, which is fascinating. Um, but yeah, how does a positive future or a future in which Allfed succeeded look like, right? Like, so we've inspired and um, enabled um, policy makers across the globe, um, acknowledge these risks, facilitate uh, preparedness plans, 
And each country might have their own version, right? How they want to respond or who they're like first responders might be like, is the responsibility say um, with industries, with military, with firefighters. Um, I, I personally don't know that at the moment, right? Like this could take several visions, but we would have search capacity around the world, agreements around food export bans uh, that, well, that people would not ban the export of food because it's clear, okay, yeah, we can produce enough. Even in the worst case scenarios, we are ready. Right? Like that is also an important highlight, what we've shown that in the previous study that I mentioned, where they've shown that like 90% of global agriculture could be disrupted in the worst case nuclear winter scenario. Um, and that might lead to say 5 billion people dying. And our research has shown that doesn't have to be the case, right? There's a, a list of solutions if implemented and collaborated um, we don't have to go that route, right? Like there's a tremendous message of hope here and a uh, possibility. So yeah, in such a world, we would have, um, good governance, um, ready, uh, because this is like a multifaceted problem, right? That we have like becoming ever better throughout history at solving, like how to make sure everyone in society has sufficient amounts of food. Um, yeah, and sorry, I lost overview of all the points I already no, made. No, this is great. Um, so it's like, in additionally, we also want like uh, investments into these search capacities. To give maybe one concrete example, we've mentioned seaweed uh, before, and to have like the biomass from which you can uh, create these seaweed farms. So seaweed, in comparison to most land crops that we eat. They have spores, not seeds, which are like, I don't know, roughly like a hundred thousandth of the size. Um, so from very little fertile seaweed biomass, right, that you could have in a small hatchery, like several aquariums in which uh, like uh, the spores are uh, growing, could be deployed over a large area and then grow into um, huge seaweed farms over several weeks or potentially months. So that means having seaweed hatcheries at major coastlines across the globe might be a very resilient infrastructure that obviously can also be used to um, create a flourishing agriculture industry today. Mm. Uh, do you have any, just because I'm curious, any uh, knowledge on what a seaweed hatchery or farm like does to the, the ecosystem? You know, in the water, does it, does it help the ecosystem? You know, <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. So this is not my area of expertise. We have one colleague in the team who also runs um, or has a seaweed startup. But there have been a lot of proposals also by the FAO, that's the Food and Agriculture Organizations, over several de decades, um, highlighting the benefits of seaweed farms and other forms of aquaculture. Um, to create the so-called like blue economy. There's um, a lot of areas where seaweed farms are um, helping uh, farmer uh, like fishers to become farmers instead, basically, right? Like agriculture farmers. So yeah, there are like, this is not my area of expertise, but I've seen several reports and suggestions how seaweed farms can clean up the oceans or be potentially carbon net negative. Uh, which is 
quite interesting. That's what. That, but obviously, yeah. that depends on the implementation, and um, yeah, that is not something I have done a deep dive into. But to my knowledge, there's a lot of upside. I might have to do a seaweed conference because I I've heard about the carbon recapture. I've heard that it can clean the water, potentially regenerate ecosystems, and I, that's why I I asked though because I'm not sure about that. I heard that if you can feed it to cows instead of normal feed, it the cows don't produce methane anymore, and that's and, you know things like that. So maybe seaweed is the answer to a lot of our problems here. So I'm might have to look into that a bit more. Uh, seriously, I think that is the case, right? And if you just I guess look at it from like um, systematic or information perspective, just like aquaculture has a different risk profile than land based agriculture. Therefore, just by diversifying where we get our um, nutrients from, uh, we are less prone to one type of risk. And one could cover for the other, which is also, I guess, how our global food system works today. Right? Like Most famines that are happening today are in regions where there's war because there's two things that are happening. There's a breakdown of markets and human aid does not um, reach those regions. So, for example, uh, the World Fruit Program is doing an important job. I think last year they supported the order of like 100 million people with food aid. Um, so, yeah. How did I get to that? Uh, <laughs> we, well, we don't, we're, we, yes. <laughs> uh, just an important thing to mention. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And, uh, Another important thing to, to mention for people that are listening is a, a lot people might be interested in understanding how they can get involved and how they could potentially uh, contribute to the goal. You know, how, how do you feed the earth in disasters? And, and um, so uh, how can listeners get involved, learn more about AllFed, potentially reach out to you or someone from your team if they have ideas or, or want to help or donate? Uh, where, give me the links. Where do you want to send people? Thank you very much uh, from, for this opportunity. So, yeah, we at Allfed, Allfed, uh, the Alliance to Feed the Earth and Disasters, uh, we have people from across the world working uh, for us, contributing. Some are volunteering, some are donating, um, some are full-time researchers or helping us in operations. There's uh, different ro um, roles, and we have been constantly growing over the last few years, uh, slowly but steadily. And best ways to go to allfed.info and uh, get in contact with us. There's a form and that email will land right in also in my inbox, but also in other colleagues. And then we see who's the best person to talk to you. So if you're like, be it like applying for jobs, um, curious to volunteer, we had people doing their internships if they are still in their studies um, or we have uh, recently a hiring round for people doing their PhD. So with one of our co-founders, David Denkenberger, uh, that's an opportunity um, and opportunities like that might arise. So you can also just like drop your email if you want to be included um, into our newsletter. So where we frequently update if we say have our next hiring round or an open role uh, where people can apply to. That's great. That's great. And I'll be sure to share that um, news that link to that newsletter as well. Um, and uh Aaron, can people find you online or Twitter or anything like that? Are you around or do you prefer to keep more private? 
Uh, less so there. Uh, I'm very happy to be added on LinkedIn. So, yeah, I'm not that active yet on social media. Thinking more and more about doing that. I've been mostly lurking. Oh, it does to... seem like a necessary evil, doesn't it? Sometimes. Um, I wouldn't even say evil. I guess... Uh... Well, it's a joke. Yeah. And there are a lot of great people. And I'm even, yeah, always excited. Well, for opportunities like this. And right, that's how we also work off okay. in a completely remote working team. Well, Aaron, I can't thank you enough. This is so fascinating. I've got a feeling it's just the tip of the iceberg of the conversations that we're going to have. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe if I want to add one thing here, um, just as an opportunity for listeners who, where this wasn't enough, uh, our founder, David Denkenberger, uh, together with the guest, uh, Sahil Shah, or like another colleague, they have been, for example, on another podcast, if that's called. Oh, please, 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 absolutely. Uh, to refer to another podcast, and that's the 80,000 Hours podcast. But there they talk for like three to four hours and go way more into depth of like the engineering challenges um, and what these solutions could look like. And a lot of like more probabilities, more numbers. So if that, that's your kind of thing. Um, I can't recommend that podcast enough. I That's actually how I found David. I'm good. I'm, and in some ways, how I found you was through the 80,000 Hours podcast. So it's it's excellent. Uh, definitely go check it out. Um, and he's a great author. He, he's uh, I haven't gotten to read his books yet, but uh, it sounds super fascinating. So um, yeah, there it is. All right, nice. Which, which one is that? Uh, yeah, so maybe a fun anecdote uh, for your listeners. So this is a book uh, one of our co-founders, David Dingenberger, wrote uh, I think in 2017, no, even early, I think 2015, would have to check. Um, but yeah, Feeding Everyone No Matter What, where he outlines what Alfred kind of has been doing for the first few years of like really looking into resilient food solutions and how to approach that. And yeah, because uh, the funny scenario was, or like the original story, David uh, then read into a book where it's like, okay, if an asteroid that like, of the size that wiped out the dinosaurs would hit today, then uh, everyone would die or everything would die, but only mushrooms would flourish in that kind of world, right? They don't require sun. They would feed off like the dead leaves and the dead trees and whatnot. And David thought to himself, wait, why don't we eat the mushrooms and don't go extinct? I had to... I had Which kind of led to... A I had to wear my mushroom <laughs> shirt today to, out of respect for David. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm a big fan. I love it. But yeah, that led to the book um, where then our second co-founder approached him. Together they founded the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters. And yeah, several years down the line, this is where we are today. Um, so yeah, I think that's well just kind of funny and great. It's all things, you know, no one wants to eat protein slime or just mushrooms or tree bark, you know, but we want to be ready to do it if we have to. You know, it's we got to survive. We've got to keep the spark of of consciousness and, and life and you know we're the stewards of the biosphere we can let's let's keep this going you know and let's find ways yeah. to do it like to be fair like that was my initial reaction as well reading through the book oh they're like oh, some of these solutions i would not be sure if i'm like do i want to eat seaweed for example but actually like since starting that research at every restaurant i had the chance i ordered the dish with seaweed just like nice <laughs> accustom myself and well it's about the balance, right? If we would still have like weed, say we have single cell protein and seaweeds, um, you could make like pasta out of it with like seaweed induced and have like some protein powder on top. I think you can still uh, 
make great meals that don't have to be disgusting at all. And I think we can like all right save a lot. We're of gonna people. have to get. We're gonna put the all fed cookbook together. All right, it's gonna be uh, all of the different sweet products you can make with seaweed and and protein slime and wool, you know, and stuff like that. Protein powders. Uh, that'd be fun. I would love to see that. I would love to all see. Right, that. We could do it. That'd be fun. Well, um, Aaron, thank you so much, man. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again, having more people from your team on. And uh, and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Robert.